I'm Matt Schrader, and this is a special bonus interview episode of Blockbuster. We're here today in the office of Roger Corman, one of the most influential producers to ever work in Hollywood, responsible for so many films, over 400 of them, and uh, for giving so many huge new Hollywood names their start. Jack Nicholson, Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, Ron Howard, and of course, from our story, people like Gail Ann Hurd, Jamie Horner, and James Cameron. And uh, in addition, Roger's been presented by the Academy with an honorary Oscar for his lifetime work, inspiring so many people, including filmmakers you never worked with uh, that uh, have grown up on your films. The one and only Roger Corman. Thanks for doing this. Happy to be here. So there's so many pieces about parts of your life. And uh, I just rewatched Corman's World, the documentary from a few years ago, which tells much of your, your early life story. But I really wanted to ask you about the mid-1970s, and, uh, you know, there's all this change happening, Jaws and Star Wars, the blockbuster era is starting to take over. How did that trend affect films that you were making at the time? I know there was there was a threat. It was not only a threat, it was a reality. I and my contemporaries were making low-budget films on various subjects, including horror, science fiction, and so forth. And we were doing rather well. When Jaws came out, Vince Canby, the uh, lead critic of the New York Times, wrote, what is Jaws but a big-budget Roger Corman film? He was right, but he missed one thing. It was a big-budget Roger Corman film. As a matter of fact, the first film I ever made was Monster from the Ocean Floor, which was somewhat similar to mm -hmm. Jaws. But he missed the point that it was bigger and better. And when I saw Jaws, I felt this is a real problem for us. The major studios are catching on to what we were doing with low budgets. They're making them with bigger budgets. And this is going to damage us because it's the same subject matter, but on a level with which we cannot compete. After Jaws came Star Wars. And once more, I said, this is a subject matter we've dealt with, but this picture is so big and so good, we have a real problem. And indeed, we did have that problem and have it today. I want to come back to James Cameron because that's kind of the start of his tenure at, uh, at New World. But a quick detour question before we get to that. In season one of the series that we did, we heard Martin Scorsese mention to his friends at the time, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, that he's going to direct a film with you called Boxcar Bertha. This was at the very start of his career. What was it about Marty Scorsese that made you trust them? What did you look for? Well, I think I had an advantage over other producers. Having been a director, I directed around 60 films before I started New World and started producing. And I felt that over a period of time, there were three qualities in successful directors. One, they were all intelligent, which, and then two, they were hardworking, um, Directing can be considered to be a glamorous job. It is also a very hard job. You can judge those two fairly well. The third is creativity. 
And there is where you have to make what I call an informed guess. <laughs> A number of them, such as Francis Coppola uh, and Jonathan Demme, a number of others, had started as my assistants, so I had an idea of how good they were with Marty Scorsese. I had not worked with him, but I had seen an underground film he'd done when, I think at the NYU mm -hmm. in New York, and I arranged to meet with him because I thought the film was very, very good. And again, just talking with him, I felt he had the intelligence, the drive, and an incredible, incidentally, incredible knowledge of films. And simply based upon that, uh, I chose Marty to do uh, Boxcar Birthday. I was curious about that, but yeah, you're, you're right. And it was a student film turned, he ended up building it out over a few years, his first kind of official feature film that he did before he did Boxcar Bertha. Marty recalled, I, I think this might have been in Corman's world, that uh, you went to a dinner party with him and you said, this might be the end of what we're doing. Hollywood's making all these big budget movies now, very difficult to compete, as you mentioned. Did you really believe that era was going to end? I felt it was going to be changing for the worst. I didn't think it was going to end, but I could predict that it was going to be less for us. What kind of pressure does that put on a studio that you're running at the time? Well, I had started New World in 1970, and I started with the type of low-budget uh, films. You can call them exploitation films. Mm -hmm. Some people uh, don't like the word exploitation. I embrace it. All films are, to a certain extent, it's exploitation. Trends, trends that are going on at the time. So I remember our first film was The Student Nurses. The second film was The Big Dollhouse about women in prison, and they did very well, and we were off to a very good start when Jaws and later... Uh, Star Wars came out, it started to hurt us, and I felt we had to raise our budgets. There was obviously no way we could compete, but we had to at least bring them up somewhat. And uh, we were making and distributing uh, 10, 11 films a year, and I felt that now was the time we had to have our own studio so that we could make bigger films. So I bought an old lumber yard. That's right, the lumber yard. <laughs> and matter, of, uh, matter of fact, people just referred to it when it was a studio. Still jokingly, they still called it the lumber yard. And our first film in the lumber yard was Battle Beyond the Stars. Well, actually, the studio wasn't completely finished when we started shooting, so we were finished. We had two sound stages. We were shooting on one sound stage and uh, still building the other. And how I first met uh, Jim Cameron, we'd finished shooting the uh, live action on Battle Beyond the Stars, but it had more special effects than we had ever had before, and we were falling behind in special effects. As I said to Gail, go down to the studio, spend a couple of days there, and tell me why we're falling behind in special effects. And she came back, and she said... Uh, your lead special effects man, as many people will do, slightly exaggerated <laughs> his experience, and he's a little bit over his head. But I've talked to the people 
in the department, and there's a kid who's building model spaceships. The model spaceships are beautiful. And also, he knows more about special effects than anybody there. And of course, it was Jim Cameron. Mm-hmm. I went down, talked with him for a little while. And this is the first time I ever did this in the midst of a picture. I said, Jim, I'm going to give you a raise, but you're going to be co-head of the special effects department. And from that, he went on to essentially running everything with special effects, uh, including he was a second, he did his first directing work as a second unit director. Right. And uh, that was on Galaxy of Terror, I think, the very yes. next film. Yes. Uh, and he, he was moved up to production designer for that one. He was everything. As a matter of fact, on production designer, I can digress for a moment here. With Titanic, mm-hmm. he made the most expensive film ever made. However, on Galaxy of Terror, as I say, he was production designer and everything, and I was going over the set with him the afternoon before uh, shooting, and uh, there was one wall of the spaceship, which was just a straight wall, and I said to him, which is something I believe, that there should be articulation of the surface, if you want to call it that, Mm -hmm. to break up the wall. Texture is a good word. Mm -hmm. Can you do something tonight so it will look better tomorrow morning? He said, no problem. Come in. I'll show you the set before we start shooting. I came in before we started shooting. The wall looked great. It had all kinds of dials and instruments and everything. And I said, Jim, this looks wonderful. How did you do this overnight? He said, I knew we were in a problem with budget, so what I did, I went to a supermarket and I bought some cartons that uh, contained various things. I glued the cartons to the wall, then I spray painted them and put on dials and various things, and uh, I knew I had a problem with money, so the total cost was $12. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I always felt that the same mind who could solve on a comparatively low-budget picture a problem for $12 was the same mind that could take $100 million and make it look like $200 million. Mm -hmm. Or $200 and make it look like... Three hundred, four hundred. He came in. He interviewed not with you, but with uh, with someone else when he first started. I think nineteen seventy eight, and at the time he brought in his short little student film, Xenogenesis. Yeah, which you can see a lot of the things that ended up in uh, Galaxy of Terror were things that are kind of in in that short student film that he did. But he showed it for some of your crew, and they were really impressed by him. And they thought, oh, this guy has something unique to him. When did you pick up that he was exceptional in some way? First, I saw the short, which I thought was really excellent. It was a brilliant short made for very little money. So it was just that. And then, really, from Gail's report and going down to the studio and talking with him at that time. Coming up after this, I want to ask you about Jim's ambitious style. He likes to challenge himself as well as those around him. Stay with us. We'll be right back with Roger Corman. And welcome back to our interview with the Roger Corman. Uh, We're sitting here in your office, surrounded by so many of the 
posters of films that you've made through the years, just a fraction really of the films that you've made or the posters that we see around us. But uh, so many of these are now iconic um, in, in so many ways. You see references to them in a lot of movies that are coming out now. And I want to kind of go back to, you know, that 1979, 1980 era, young James Cameron is working in the model shop and he's building things and sketching out ships and, uh, one of the, the famous stories is uh, how James got your attention with his drawing of spaceships and yeah. how that came about. I was looking for an interesting design for the spaceship and that each spaceship, there were a number of them, each having a, a specific character flying the ship. I wanted the, the spaceships to reflect the character of the pilot. So I wanted differentiation between the ships. I wanted them to look fantastic, but I also wanted them to look as if they were real, that they obeyed the laws of aerodynamics and so forth. And that's what Jim was able to do. The spaceships were so good that we reused them in a number of films. <laughs> I remember I was at a, at a film festival in the Netherlands and uh, there was a panel and I was, asking, I was answering questions and one person said, when will we have the honor and pleasure of seeing Jim Cameron's spaceships once more. <laughs> well, they made quite an impact. He was trying to make them, this was post-Star Wars, so trying to give them more of a feminine look uh, for some of them, more curvy, a little more more pizzazz to yeah. them maybe. James had such a meteoric rise over just a, a few years really with you. He came from driving trucks to being a production designer inside of you know just a few years. What struck you specifically about James that encouraged you to give him more and more responsibility so quickly? Uh, several things. One, he was a very hard worker. He could work essentially almost all night long if necessary. The other simply was the creativity. Everything he did was not only good, it was brilliant, uh, He's, one, he's really one of the most brilliant uh, directors I've ever worked with. I know he would spend the night sometimes in the uh, in the lumberyard. He'd pull out a prop gurney that was in the shop. He'd crash for a few hours, you know, wake up early, repaint something or design something else and be there when people showed up again. I had been told that. I didn't see him. <laughs> but again, it's hard to beat somebody who is both brilliant and super hardworking. That leads me to one of the things that struck me about his personality that was so interesting. He was well aware that you would had given several brilliant filmmakers their start. Martin Scorsese was doing things, Coppola, of course, Ron Howard. And James felt he was nowhere near as brilliant as those guys and said, I've got to bust my ass to try to make up for it because I'm never going to have the natural skill that those guys have. But if I, I work hard enough to make up for it, maybe I can hang with him. The work ethic did come across, but he was understating his own ability. He was brilliant, as were Francis Marty and so forth. So one story that, that uh, I wanted to ask you about is this startled James when he, he was an art director. You came in, I think he was working on a set, had a, a small crew around him, and uh, you came in in the morning and said, this set isn't finished, you're fired, <laughs> or something to that effect. And he 
left, I guess, angry or upset or something. And someone said, no, 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 no. Roger just does that sometimes. It's you're fine. You're come back, finish what you're working on. Uh, do you remember this? I, I have no memory of that. Because uh, <laughs> you could be the first person that fired James Cameron. Uh, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I think that's a myth. Okay. Stories build up. <laughs> that's right. Something extra that I found is James started to do, and I've heard him mention this several times, he would station someone to give a heads up when you showed up, in, uh, when you drove in in the morning. Um <laughs> So that over the walkie, someone would say, Roger's here. That it, I think he ended up saying the eagle has landed or so, you know, something in code. But he'd send everyone away before he walked in. There'd still be wet paint and there'd still be other things just so that it looked close enough like you were ready. And, uh, and James said uh, he, he referred to those as Roger drills. Have you heard this story? Are you aware of this? Uh, I, I had heard vague things like that. Okay. Right. Basically, so when you were walking through, it was clear what was going on. And then as soon as you cleared, he'd bring everyone back. They'd finish the last of what they were doing, and then they were ready to roll. When he moved up to production designer, he still wasn't making that much money a week. And there was a moment where he insisted on being paid what the last guy was that I think he was making something like 200 a week at the time or something like that. And he said, what's the last, what did the last guy make? Um, and the answer was something like 750. And he said, well, the last guy fucked up. I'm not going to fuck up. Promise <laughs> you I'm not going to fuck up. I remember his salary going up. Uh, I just felt, you know, he was doing such a good job and he was now in a higher position. So he should be uh, reimbursed. And you must have sensed there was a rare talent there also. It truly was a, a rare talent. He designed the spaceships, then he designed the whole sets and essentially took over the design, uh, what would you say, a production designer of, of the whole operation. What's it like to have somebody like that who you can reliably rely on? It's great. Every picture has problems come up that you do not anticipate. And Jim was not only able to do everything that we plan when a problem came up, as in the $12 uh, instruments, right. he could solve that problem. I had total faith in what he did, and he never disappointed. He was extremely efficient and brilliant on everything he ever did. I have nothing but praise for Jim. Coming up, I want to ask you about a couple other people whose careers you launched that continued on with James Cameron, Gail Ann Hurd, Bill Paxton, Jamie Horner. Um, we'll be right back with Roger Corman right after this. And we're back with Roger Corman, the man who launched so many careers and still an inspiration to so many. I wanted to ask you about a few people from James Cameron's early years. Um, and actually, one of them was a producer that gave him his first full-on directing gig, uh, Ovidio Asinidis, for Piranha 2. And tell me a little bit about that. I remember Piranha 2. He'd shot, I think, in the Caribbean somewhere. Jamaica. For, yeah, in Jamaica for this Italian producer. And when he came back, he showed me the picture. And I was really surprised because everything he had ever done was truly brilliant. And Piranha 2 wasn't very good. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to say, Jim, what happened? But he, told, he, he saw, I guess, the look on my face. And he said, what happened? I really only directed part of this film. And it turned out 
that this Italian producer, as Jim said to me, used his name because people were already aware of what he'd been doing with me, used his name as a director to get the financing. But once the picture started, he fired Jim and took over himself because that was what he always wanted to do to direct the picture. And frankly, his work was not brilliant. He was and, no James uh, Gammon. And so therefore, Jim had to explain, essentially, although he got a credit somewhere as, as director, he, he didn't really direct the whole film. I didn't think of it as a death blow. I thought of it really as a disappointment. Everything he had done for me was so good, and this was not that good, and I was really wondering why. Uh, it didn't make sense to me because I knew his talent and the talent was not there on the screen. And then he explained what happened and I understood. Ah, yeah, okay. He connected with Gail Ann Hurd shortly after then. They started working on The Terminator. She said when she interviewed with you, you asked her what she wanted to do. She said, I want to be a producer. And then she thought, oh, no, now he'll never hire me. Women aren't supposed to say this. I shouldn't, shouldn't have been so bold. What stood out to you about Gail? Simply her intelligence. Uh, she'd come down from uh, mild University, Stanford. Uh, she had a Phi Beta Kappa key and recommendations uh, from uh, various faculty that she showed me. And uh, what she didn't know was she had the job before the interview, uh, providing <laughs> she didn't hit me or slug me or something right. during the interview, she was going to get the job. She later told me that she was going to explain how fast she could type because she felt that was an important thing. And she was surprised whenever I never asked her any <laughs> questions like that. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And I think she graduated in the top 1% of her class. So she had quite a, a reputation just out of out of college, out of Stanford. One other person I wanted to ask you about was Jamie Horner, the composer who did uh, Battle Beyond the Stars, uh, Humanoids from the Deep. Do you remember how you first came across him? He was recommended, as a matter of fact, suggested uh, that I hire him by uh, John Davison, who, again, was one of my uh, top assistants. And uh, uh, he, uh, John played some music he had written and I said fine I think he's really good I had no way of knowing of course that he was going to rise to the heights he did mm -hmm. but it was clear just from that sample that here was a very good young composer and he was a music teacher I think a teacher music classes at least at UCLA at the time so that was kind of his first experience moving in as a, a, a film composer and um, Jim Cameron had a great story. I don't know if you'll recall this, but I wanted to, I made a note to ask you where he said, after Battle Beyond the Stars, you two talked about how the music for that movie made the production value seem so much higher. And, and Jim said, oh, yeah, I think you could probably say this cost four, five, six million bucks. <laughs> and you were quite amused by that. And thought, good, good. That's a good thing. Do you remember that conversation at all? Yes, I do. You yes. do? Yeah, right. Um, that, that was a major part of the way we worked. How do you take a low-budget picture and make it look and sound and really emerge uh, 
in the audience's eyes and ears there as a bigger picture. There's almost irony there of your relatively small budget features that gave birth to James Cameron, the guy who is almost the furthest opposite of that as you can get. We'll be right back with some final questions with Roger Corman right after this. And we're back with Roger Corman for final questions here. And out of your incubator of, of small films at, uh, at New World Pictures came so many future talents. But interesting to me is that these smaller films birthed James Cameron, a filmmaker who's made the most expensive and successful, but f- first things first is it's expensive, uh, movies of all time. And in my research, I saw a clip of you, it was in the 1980s, saying, $35 million for a film, that is a budget that seems frankly obscene at the time. So when you hear Titanic, $230 million budget, does it just make you sick? <laughs> well, I think of it this way. How is the money spent? With Jim, whatever the picture cost, you saw it on the screen. With so many other pictures, it cost $100 million or something, and it's a couple of people walking around a room, and you say, where did the money go? With Jim, the money is on the screen. You are getting what you expect to get from that type of film. There's a lot of filmmakers that are are risk takers in many ways. And Jim, it was interesting to me, you look over the the span of his life, um, and a lot of the films that he's done, starting with maybe Terminator, where, you know, he gave up the rights to that in order to basically have as much control as possible in the, the, the creativity of that. Did he strike you as someone that would take more risks for more potential reward? I, I don't know if I thought of him as exactly that, mm-hmm. but I, I knew that he would take risks. He would gamble that something would pay off because in his own mind, he knew he could do it. And indeed, he could do it and did do it. One thing James has said, he often felt that he had to try to live up to other people's expectations. And the irony here is that probably there's very few people that had the same expectations as Jim did for himself (laughs) on things. Um, What would you say it is that makes James Cameron, James Cameron? I think there's a creative drive within him that is expressed through his films and through many other things. His deep sea exploration, which is risky not only with money as in Titanic, it's risky with his own life because he was down there at incredible depths. I think it's this uh, drive to succeed in everything he can possibly do. And one of the things that he also accomplished, he inspired others to work as hard as he did. I'm not certain they actually, a matter of fact, they didn't equal (laughs) what he could do. But he brought out the best in the people he worked with because he demonstrated he himself was willing to work that hard and they tried to emulate him. Roger Corman, an icon. Such a pleasure. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. 